Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a longstanding community partner with Forward Radio, WFMPLP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. And speaking of the station, Forward Radio is Louisville's all-volunteer community radio station, and we're a Pacifica affiliate. Please join our movement. Go to forwardradio.org. We'd love to hear your idea for a show and consider becoming a sustainer to support the station. And again, we want to thank everyone who chipped in last week during the Give for Good uh, here in town. We're recording today's show Tuesday afternoon, September 21st, and want to remind listeners that you can hear this program, Single Payer Radio, on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Mike Flynn. Mike? Well, thank you, Mark. <clears throat> um, let me begin with the usual uh, disclaimer that uh, any comments or views that I express uh, during this program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of either the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. I'm Eugene Shopley, and the views that I express do not reflect uh, Taylor Regional Hospital nor the University of Louisville or Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So our topic today, we're, we're going to have kind of a two-part program. We're going to begin with a, a kind of a broad overview discussion about uh, finances in U.S. healthcare, which I would want to call, where does the money go? And uh, that is going to be a lead in to uh, the main purpose for doing this program, which is to discuss some of the out-of-pocket healthcare costs. And we have a special guest today. Um, Susan Bornstein is a retired gynecologist with a master's in public health. Susan has been on this program before, and she has volunteered to discuss with us um, the finances of her health care coverage with her, her health, uh, Susan and her husband. And um, uh, this is really, <laughs> it's got some, she's got some hair raising numbers there. Now, I would like to stop for a moment before we do this. Uh, a colleague of mine and, and Jean's, uh, David Richardson, um, died on the 7th of September up in um, Saratoga. David uh, was an icon of American surgery. He was a vice chairman of the surgery department. Um, he was uh, president of the American Ball of, of College of Surgeons and uh, the chairman of the board. Um, <clears throat> I've known no, David for many years. We spent many hours in the operating room together. He was a good surgeon. Uh, he was a researcher and he was a mentor, and he will be greatly missed. Uh, yes, David was a good friend of mine. I remember the first day I met him was in 1976, 
and he was just a super guy. Not only was he a prominent surgeon, but he was heavily involved in the thoroughbred horse racing, and I think had uh, been a member of the jockey club, and also he was, uh, I think, chairman of the Commission on Racing in the state of Kentucky. It was a fascinating go to the track with David. He knew everybody and, and not just the owners and the jockeys and uh, the trainers, but he knew everybody on the back of the track and they all knew him personally. Yeah, he was really, really an interesting man. Okay, before we get started, I would like to challenge our listeners uh, not to take what we say as the truth or gospel. Hopefully it will will uh, raise some questions or, or stimulate some interest. And I would challenge them to um, go to whatever source, a reference source they feel is, is appropriate and, and determine whether what we're talking about uh, is, is, is true. So let's, uh, let's begin. Um, we, we, in this country, we, we have uh, probably, I guess, the highest uh, uh, gross national product in, in the world. We spend 17 or 18 percent of that on health care, which is probably the highest of any first world countries. And what do we get, we get for it? Well, we, our longevity is not very good compared to a lot of other first world countries. Uh, we had Jeff Goldblum on for a program uh, earlier in which he uh, explained to us that uh, our uh, fetal maternal uh, morbidity and mortality is equivalent to that of a third world country. So we've, we we're not getting a lot of benefit out of all of this money that we're spending on healthcare. And Gene, you've, uh, you've mentioned uh, the fact that um, uh, there's three plus trillion dollars in, in healthcare and a third of that is not being spent on health care. So I know you've got some other comments you want to make, but when you get done with those others, if you could address that, we'll, we'll, the conversation will go on. Okay. Well, I just want to, everybody to know that the legislature passed a, a bill on a week before last that, uh, that you couldn't mandate mask. And uh, what is that doing to... Uh, uh, to Kentuckians and the cost of medicine. Uh, another interesting thing that happened to me personally, I took a prescription to a pharmacy for Belinda. It's an antiplatelet drug, and uh, they were wanting uh, $500 for a nine-day supply. As you know, the pharmaceutical costs are just uh, out of control. In the last two years, our uh, obesity rate is dramatically increasing. It's now up to about 35%. This cost us a huge amount of money on most of the new cases of diabetes is coming from obesity. Another interesting thing that we have spent $5.7 billion on unvaccinated people in the last three months, the June, July, and August. If they had been vaccinated, uh, <clears throat> that would have probably been zero or close to it. Um, we are also uh, 
at a school board meeting in Camelsville last week, uh, a lady stood up and said that physicians were being bribed and that uh, we, uh, uh, that, that all this COVID stuff uh, was not really happening. I wish I knew where the money was coming. I might try to get in on that. <laughs> it's just unbelievable some of the things that people are thinking. And the last thing I wanted to mention is I saw my cardiologist last week and he spent a huge amount of time on electronic medical records. This cost us a huge amount of money. Now, uh, we spend approximately uh, $3.8 trillion on health care. It's around 18% of the GNP. It's the highest in the world. Uh, and approximately a third of that money is, uh, is wasted. It, uh, it goes to um, places that, uh, um, that has nothing uh, to do with... Uh, medicine. Let me just give you a, uh, just a, a, a brief summary of that. Uh, we've talked about it before. Uh, I don't um, swear that these numbers are correct. They're constantly changing. And also, it's hard to get uh, the exact number. But an example is there's approximately $228 billion in pharmaceuticals. Uh, that is constantly changing. Uh, and we, it's very difficult to get the exact number, uh, but I can tell you that the United States is uh, responsible for half of the drug bill of the entire world. Uh, we waste approximately $150 billion on uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers, and we want to get, get into what they are, but they're essentially bit, uh, middle people who negotiate drug prices. Uh, we have more administrators in this country in healthcare than any country in the world. We waste an estimated 158 billion. The cost of electronic medical records is estimated at 80 billion. That doesn't count all the extra time that, that doctors and nurse practitioners, et cetera, have to spend on um, electronic medical re uh, records. We're the only country in the world that allows uh, doctors, hospitals, pharmaceutical country, companies to advertise. It's estimated that costs $30 billion. I suspect that since I got this data, that's increased. Uh, medical fraud is approximately $230 billion. Um, uh, For-profit insurance is estimated there's a huge waste of $18 billion. I think that number is much more now particularly uh, in the last two years. Most for-profit insurance companies made a huge profit in 2020 because they didn't have to pay for elective surgery. Um, we're doing better in palliative medicine, but we still waste a huge amount of money on patients that uh, need palliative medicine that are still getting treated in ICUs and um, other things. It's estimated that the defensive medicine in this country is 46 billion. Uh, For-profit for uh, hospitals have estimated about a, 100 billion. That means that lots of money is going to stockholders where it should be going uh, to go back into uh, 
decreasing the cost of uh, hospitalization, or it could be going to, for medical research or uh, advancing your hospital. Uh, Not-for-profit hospitals also um, uh, waste a lot of money. It's estimated it's, that it's $280 billion. Uh, as unnecessary ER visits, approximately $8 billion. And unnecessary hospitalization, approximately $3 billion. So approximately a third of all the money we spend is wasted. And uh, uh, if we could fix that problem, we could probably go to, uh, to uh, Medicare for all. Uh, Medicare is the most efficient system in our country, and it probably wouldn't cost us anything. Uh, Gene, that's a mouthful. <laughs> Susan, you got some thoughts about <laughs> I, I don't know if you were keeping track of everything he said. I, I certainly wasn't, but I thought I'd give you a shot at it. <laughs> what, whatever you whatever your thoughts are about any one of those things. Just an astronomical amount of money. And I read an article today that looked at one of the things that Gene just didn't happen to hit on in his very comprehensive review was the switch over in hospice, which has now gone from about one third of hospice organizations being not for being for profit to two thirds of um, hospice organizations being for profit. And this has resulted in increased numbers of hospitalizations and costs compared to um, previously when the majority were nonprofit. So, so that's another area that is also driving up healthcare costs. Same so, things happening with nursing homes. Almost all of our nursing homes are now uh, profit driven, and but they don't tell anybody. Patients. Uh, don't know that. I think most of the doctors don't even know that they're owned by equity companies. All right, let's pick out one component of all of the stuff that Gene was just talking about for a minute. Okay, um, the administrative overload in U.S. healthcare. Um, since the mid 1970s or late 1970s to the mid late uh, 2010s, <clears throat> there's been an astonishing uh, what you alluded to, Jane, 300, I'm sorry, 3,000% increase in um, hospital uh, health care administrators. I mean, these are, these are uh, managers, pharmacy benefit managers, risk management uh, administrators, hospital, there, there's, there are 10 administrator managers bean counters to every one practicing physician in this country which is remarkable and uh, we're not just making this up there are three references for our listeners uh, the new york times a uh, business section uh, the 9th of june 2019 the bureau of labor statistics and the harvard business review so the question is what are, what are all these people doing I mean, they're not um, working on the floors, they're not in the ICUs, they're not in the emergency rooms, they're not doing COVID tests, and they're not giving vaccines. Uh, they're mostly people who sit behind computers with expensive suits, figuring out ways to take money that is in healthcare 
and is not used to provide health care. Um, any comments from either one of you? Well, the federal government is driving some of that. Uh, for example, um, we have a nurse administrator that does quality work, and I'm on a QA committee, and every time she presents stuff, I don't know what she's talking about. And I haven't bothered to try to figure it out because I think it's a waste of time. And it's, it, it's very complicated, but I don't think it really affects patient outcome. Well, that's that's I consider that a minor issue compared to the the the, the pharmacy benefit manager. Now, this is an individual who is in between um, the pharmaceutical company, uh, the distributor, the pharmacy, and the patient. And as you mentioned, Gene. <laughs> They're raking in all kinds of money, and nobody knows where it's coming from. I mean, they 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 take a drug, at, buy the drug at a discount, and then sell it at different rates of uh, increase at different at different levels to different pharmacies or different entities. And uh, you know, they're very smart. This is good business, but it's not really good for healthcare. And th these, these, I don't believe these things exist in other countries. No, I'm sure they don't. Now, most other countries, uh, pharmacy prices are determined by a bid. For example, Canada <clears throat> has a committee that bids for drugs, and um, uh, they, they, they pay that amount unless it's appealed. And most of the times, the appeals uh, fail. Most European countries do the same thing. Yeah, we, we had Ted Young on uh, early sometime last year, <clears throat> who is a uh, uh, up at Mc, his head and neck surgeon up at McMaster's in Hamilton, Ontario, and and we talked about that. And I don't remember what the 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 organization is called called, but it is an independent uh, organization in in the Canada Canadian health system that uh, negotiates for uh, uh, drug prices. It also identifies you know, the appropriateness of having a drug in the system. So you've got five or six drugs that all do the same thing. They go through this evaluation process and identify. So you don't have advertising on television for 10 different drugs that are all, all doing the same thing. And I, I don't know about other European countries, but I agree with you. I think that they, they do. Uh, the same sorts of things. It's interesting that Medicaid can um, can bid for drugs, and the VA can, uh, but Medicare can't cannot. And it's actually written into the law that they can't. Yes, do that. and there there is an attempt currently um, to get that uh, changed. And it's interesting that there are both Republican and Democratic uh, members, I think, of the House of Representatives because of their uh, relationships to the pharmaceutical industry who are opposed to that. And, you know, it's just remarkable when you think about the influence that this industry has on, on um, what happens with the resources in healthcare in this country. Uh, let me tell a quick story about <clears throat> politicians and their awareness of, of um, 
of healthcare, there was a surgeon here in Louisville that you, you remember a fellow named Bob Deweese, who um, when he was getting toward the end of his career, he, he ran for, uh, for public office and, and, and uh, he was a representative in the House of Representatives in the state of Kentucky. And he gave a talk at the Louisville Surgical Society in which he, um, he made two points. This was probably 20 years ago that I remember very clearly. Uh, number one was the, the, the process of getting legislation passed. And he described a situation where he, he sponsored a bill that went through the, the committee process. And by the time the bill came back to be voted on, it had changed so much, he voted against his own bill. Uh, the other thing he said, which was very clearly, and I mean, I think you can, you referenced the activities of the uh, Kentucky legislature in dealing with the, the COVID pandemic and the restrictions that they put on the governor, who I think has done an outstanding job. Uh, he said that politicians, they don't know anything about healthcare. He's very clear about that. And they come from business backgrounds. They may run gas stations. They may their lawyers, uh, uh, different consulting organizations, but they just don't understand it. And uh, and that's one of the reasons we're in some of the mess that we're in uh, today. Susan, uh, any thoughts about any of these issues? Well, the one that popped into my head when you were talking about the administrative costs is that it always used to just make me batty that people that had less knowledge and less education than I did and who had never met my patients were second guessing my decisions about the care that they needed. These were people who were not in the exam room, who frequently had not gone to medical school, who certainly hadn't done OBGYN residencies. And yet they uh, were afforded the opportunity and in fact uh, required by the insurance company to weigh in on my decisions. I would say that over my 30 year career, I, I, I don't actually recall any single decision of mine that was ever successfully overturned or successfully challenged. All it did was delay care uh, delay necessary care for my patients and made them suffer uh, weeks or months longer than than they would have if they'd even had Medicare, which doesn't do this. Well, that's just one example of all of the other uh, issues that are related to having all these bean counters and managers around. If you think about what goes on in a hospital today and how the nursing staff is moved around and, and, and placed in different situations, uh, not by the chief of nursing, but by the administrators. And, and much of this is driven by uh, an assortment of, 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 of goals. Um, Gene, any thoughts about that? Well, I think uh, the problem with the administration is uh, really terrible. I've always felt that uh, Hospitals should, the CEO should be a doctor, but he still has to practice. Uh, in other words, he would uh, be the guy in charge, but he would have a uh, administrator who would work under him and uh, he or she would tell the administrator under him what to do. 
but that that doctor or nurse still has to see patients because if you take them out of the clinical realm, they will eventually evolve into an administrator. Well, it, what's happened today makes it even worse because at least in Louisville, almost all of the practices are now in the different healthcare systems. And so the physicians working in one or other of the downtown hospitals get their paychecks from the administration. Uh, when I was president of the Norton Medical Staff way back in, in, in the, in the 19, late 1970s, we had a lot of influence on what went on. Um, there were people who, who were mostly in independent practice or in small group practices or in the, the faculty of the university was a large group. And you could influence what happened. Uh, the balance of power has shifted. And uh, I've talked with lots of people over the last 10 or 15 years who have gone into these, um, these hospital systems and um, they just don't have the influence that they did years ago. And in fact, they often are, um, quote, encouraged, unquote, to do certain things like retain referrals within the system as opposed to sending a patient with um, a parathyroid to uh, somebody who does a lot of parathyroid surgery instead of having somebody within their system do it, which often doesn't have a very good outcome. Um, why don't we start getting into some of the issues that we asked Susan to come on and talk about? So, um, <clears throat> health insurance companies—they um, negotiate with hospitals, healthcare organizations, physician practices, make backroom deals. The details, the prices, the cost of service. Uh, procedure varies with the plan, company, the organization. This is an insanely complex system uh, resulting in a whole bunch of costs to people who are buying health care. Uh, Susan, you and, and your husband have uh, been living with this for a number of years. Would you <laughs> want to lay the groundwork for the the next uh, next part of this program and things we can talk about sure so of course as you just alluded to it's a little bit complicated and I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as i can so i worked for a large hospital organization and when i uh, decided to retire from that uh, my husband and i were not quite old enough to qualify for medicare yet and we thought my husband is a solo practicing dentist and his staff all have health insurance through their spouses and did not need health coverage so we thought that we would be able to simply buy a plan on the exchange, uh, the marketplace exchange. After all, that had been touted as how we were going to be able to, to get health insurance. That's why it was passed. To, prior to the exchange, 20% of people could not get health insurance uh, from commercial carriers because of pre-existing conditions. They simply got turned down for health insurance. And Fortunately, that was um, eliminated with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So we thought, well, we'll just go on the exchange and get health health care. Well, 
we quickly learned that there were a couple of little glitches in that system. First of all, in Kentucky, there are only two insurance companies that are selling individual plans on the exchange. Neither one of those insurance companies offers out-of-network benefits, at least as far as the silver plans are concerned, which is kind of the middle of the road. So if you need any health care other than um, emergency care, you can't get it. So, for example, if it's the middle of a pandemic and you're uh, living in a high-rise elevator, high-rise uh, building, and you don't want to... Um, you want to get out of town and you can go stay with some friends in Ohio for three months, uh, you basically have no insurance coverage whatsoever. And for this privilege, the for the two of us, the premiums are or would have been just a little under $2,000 a month with a $17,000 out of network, uh, out of pocket um, maximum which means that our exposure on an annual basis was about $24,000 in fixed costs and $41,000 overall. And that would be every year. Now, Susan, let's stop a minute and go back a, a little bit. The, what, whoever's listening doesn't probably may not know all of these details. So, so aside, after, when you, you talk about the the limitations of out-of-pocket costs. What, you know, what, what do you, what is it that you're thinking? What I mean, what, well, how much? What? Give us a couple of examples of the kinds of out-of-pocket costs that that are not covered by the insurance, and it goes into that. What did you say it was seventeen thousand dollars or seventeen thousand for the two of us? Yes. So, um, and, and, and we wound up not getting an AC plan. We did get a different kind of plan. Um, it's ACA compliant, but not through the marketplace. And I can talk in some more details about that because there are still issues. But basically when you buy health insurance, um, you pay a premium uh, every month. And then almost all insurance plans other than perhaps Medicaid have what are called deductibles. So that is a, an amount that you have to pay before the insurance company pays a single penny towards your health care, with some notable exceptions. Uh, for example, uh, well woman exams and colonoscopies are excluded from those from those deductibles, and so they do not pay anything until they pay the deductibles which are on the order of uh, $5,500. And then once you've met your deductible, so you've paid your premiums, in this case, $24,000 plus another $5,000 or so in deductibles, then the insurance companies will start paying something. But what that something is, is also determined by your plan. So you might have an 80-20 plan or a 70-30 plan where the insurance company will pay X percentage, but you have to keep paying the other percentage until you have reached your out-of-pocket maximum, which is the total amount that the insurance company can have you on the hook for before they will fully cover your expenses. So first you have to meet, so you have to pay your premiums, 
then you have to pay your deductibles. Then the insurance companies will start kicking in something, but they won't kick in everything until you have met what, or you won't be fully covered for inch for medical expenses until you've met those out-of-pocket maximums. And those okay, medical let, expenses let, can let's be anything. Go let's you, go back. Let's go back over this again, because this is insane. So you pay $2,000 a month. Okay. Let's say here you are in January, 2022, and um, you get appendicitis. So you pay your $2,000 premium. And then you have to come up with $5,500, you have to pay that out of pocket before your insurance starts to kick in. Is that right? That is correct. And then when it kicks in, depending upon your plan, it could pay only uh, 60, 70, or 80% of the cost of having to have the x-rays, the CT scan, because I had my appendix removed. They didn't, I thought it was my gallbladder. They told me it was my appendix and, you know, and they all smiled that, you know, why is a head and neck surgeon know about what's going on in his abdomen anyway. And then, you know, with the anesthesia and the operation and the post-operative care, I mean, it, it runs up some dollars, but they, that they only pay, let's say you have what a 70, 30 plan. And then, and then when, when do they, and, and so you maybe use up, you probably use most of that up the three days in the hospital with all the other things, right? How much money has to be, what's, what's, what's the number again, where they, before they start covering all of the costs of, of your, your healthcare, suppose you have a gallbladder attack, maybe five months. <laughs> right. So you're, you're basically on the hook for another $8,700 as an individual or $17,400 for a family. Before they pay for everything. You're not correct. The nickel diming you for 60, 40, paying your deductible, paying your, now do you have co-pays in that and, and uh, surprise billing is all that, is well, all an issue that, as well? That would be dependent on what your plan is, whether you have a plan that calls for co-pays versus a percentage. You know, some of them are fixed dollar amounts and some of them are percentage amounts. But there's one other point that I want to make that that I learned when I was buying this, this new health insurance that I found particularly appalling. So there are certain qualifying events that allow you to sign up for a new insurance plan at times other than January the 1st. So say you sign up on April the 1st for your new health insurance plan with an ACA compliant plan, whether you get it through, the, through a group plan or on the marketplace. The premiums then start on April the 1st and run of one year and run until March the 31st of the following year. However, the deductible and the out-of-pocket maximums reset themselves on December 31st. So you could be in a position where you have the $24,000 in premiums between April the 1st 
and of one year and March the 31st of the next year, but you have to pay your out-of-pocket maximum of $17,000 twice in that 12-month period because it's sunset on December the 31st. So say you had that appendectomy on March the 15th and you wound up paying and your husband or your spouse had something else. I'm just going to use this as an example. And you paid that whole $17,000. So, so far for this 12-month period, you've paid $24,000 in premiums and $17,000 in out-of-pocket expenses. Then on February the 1st, you and your spouse get in a car accident and both have to have surgery again. You're subjected to that same $17,000 out of maximum. So in a 12-month period, you could pay $24,000 plus $17,000 plus another $17,000 in healthcare expenses before the insurance company pays a dime. Well, don't you feel good that you can support the the CEO of the insurance company with their 20 to $30 million a year salary. I mean, I mean, why are you complaining about <laughs> not, not just, not just that, but he explains why two thirds of the bankruptcies in the United States of America are due to health insurance uh, costs and, and time off work due to, due to illness. You're, abs- you. you're absolutely right. That, that that's, that's a, somewhere between 500 to 800,000 people a year. And it, this doesn't exist in other first world countries because I, wrote, I wrote a paper about that a while back for Louisville Medicine. And I couldn't find anything about medically related bankruptcy in other first world countries because it doesn't happen very often. I found one article in that in, in that indicated in the country of France with 70 million people there was one count them one medically related bankruptcy now the medical related bankruptcy is a bankruptcy related to not being able to pay your medical bills now people can go into bankruptcy if they have a medical problem and they can't work and that's another form of bankruptcy. But the medical bankruptcy that you're referring to, and is, as you're right, it represents 60, 65% of filed bankruptcies in this country is because people can't pay their medical bills because they deal with some of the insane stuff you were just talking to us about. They, I, uh, oh, go ahead. I, the other thing that I was going to say is you might say, I mean, I don't think $58,000 in out-of-pocket health care costs are justifiable under any circumstances, but because, I mean, who on, how many people can afford that? You know, maybe if you're Jeff Bezos, but most people can't afford that. Um, but the other point that I would make is that you could say, okay, well, we spend all this money and we, but we, but we get great care. We, you know, the U S has the best healthcare system in the world, best healthcare in the world, except the facts are that that's not true. And in fact, there was just a report in the last couple of weeks that was published by the Commonwealth fund where the United States was compared to 10 other high income countries with regards to healthcare for looking at healthcare performance and outcomes. 
And not only did the United States score last in healthcare performance compared to these other 10 countries, they scored dead last in every metric category but one. So we spend 18% of GDP, as you pointed out before, gross domestic product, and we have basically nothing to show for it. Not only do we spend more, we do worse. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I tell a story. I was out in Crested Butte a couple of years ago, which is a little ski town out in Colorado where we have a place. And um, it was in the summer and uh, there's a lot of mountain biking going on there. And we had had dinner and walked into a little place to listen to some music and sat at the end of the bar. <clears throat> there was a kind of stocky not fat, but a you know, muscular guy sitting next to me. And uh, my wife took off to make a run to the head. And I, I was trying to read the, <laughs> trying to read the, uh, I'm going to get in trouble from that. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. It was too yeah. late now. Anyhow, I asked this guy to borrow his glasses, or I was looking at the menu and he gave me the glasses. I got to tell he was Swiss. And he was a Swiss uh, uh, national living in some kind of trailer. He'd come to Crested Butte to mountain bike. And he was, um, I don't know, probably in his late 40s, mid 50s. And we got to talking about healthcare. And he pulls a card out of his, out of his pocket and showed it to me. He pays about $600 a year as is, I don't know what exactly it, it, it is, whether it's a deductible or, or a premium or something. And, and what he showed me was that with that car, if he had an accident mountain biking, and now why some 55-year-old guy is going down the mountain and a mountain bike is another issue, they would fly him back to Switzerland to get his care. And we're in this country, the richest country in the world. You, you, you just went through a litany of, 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 of a nightmare scenario that we were talking before we got started. We've got, what, 40, 30, 40 million um, uninsured and 30, 40 million underinsured. We've got 80, 90 million people in this country are vulnerable to the medical bankruptcy as a result of this insane system that is not uh, functional as a healthcare system, but it's vulnerable as a healthcare industry for people who want to extract profit from it. Uh, the word often comes up a coinsurance. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of what coinsurance means? Some people say it's cost sharing. Who, me? I mean, I always thought that coinsurance was the percentage that you had to pay um, towards your premium if you were in an 80-20, I mean, towards your healthcare costs if you were in an 80-20 plan or 70-30 plan. Right, and uh, that keeps going up. After you get all your deductibles paid, then you get into the, uh, to the situation where you're sharing with the insurance company, and it can be different for different policies. Um, 
the, it's interesting that uh, about 155 million people in the United States have employer-sponsored insurance, but uh, the deductibles have gone up 111%, while the average earnings has increased only 27%. So we, uh, we're, the, the cost of uh, health insurance is uh, gradually going up way beyond uh, the um, of what people are making. Another interesting thing is coinsurance affects people differently. For example, if you're a diabetic and you have to take insulin, you've got to pay a lot more money for, for your drugs than uh, if you're uh, on uh, drugs that don't cost so much. Uh, Susan, we, we were talking a little bit before we actually started the show and I made the comment that uh, um, I had understood from somewhere that that uh, uh, lower income folks who had either Medicaid, Medicaid expansion or um, folks with Medicare as a result of the Affordable Care Act were less vulnerable to all of these uh, out of pocket costs. And you corrected me on that. Would you want to make a comment about that for our listeners? Thank you. Um, so the max, so, so Kentucky does have Medicaid expansion, but the cutoff for Medicaid in the state of Kentucky, which as we all know is, is insurance for the, for the economically disadvantaged, the cutoff income, the maximum income for an individual on Medicaid, of course, it matters whether you're one person or a family of four or whatever. But if you're an individual, the income is uh, the cutoff income is $17,131 a year, which works out to $8.23, being paid $8.23 an hour. So if you make more than $17,000, you don't qualify for Medicaid. So I've been helping a, a young man who has a job where he makes $11.50 an hour. Um, so he is close to the Medicaid cutoff, depending on how many hours he works. Uh, um, and he, um, so I, I used as an example, say you're making $18,000 a year, which none of us would consider very much money. And therefore you do not qualify for Medicaid in the state of Kentucky. So you're gonna go on to the, the marketplace and buy a plan through the Affordable Care Act. The premium, the, the, you can get subsidies towards the premiums on the marketplace. But I looked at some of these plans, so no premiums, you don't have to pay any premiums. For a silver plan, the uh, deductible, which we talked about before, was $750, and the out-of-pocket maximum was $1,700. Now think about that for a minute, $1,700 is 10% of this person's gross income. However, if you're making $18,000 a year, your federal income taxes are 12% and your Kentucky state tax is 5% after a certain uh, deduction of $2,690. That leaves you with a net income of $13,370.
If you are then having to pay $1,700 of that in out-of-pocket expenses for your health insurance, then that leaves you with less than 10, what, um, 10,000, no, I can't do the math in my head, but about $11,000 a year, leaves you with $11,000 a year. If your rent is $1,000 a month, which is still pretty low, you have nothing left. Well, that's You have no money for food. You have no money for a car. You have no gas money. You have nothing. Welcome to American healthcare. And the point that I want to make in addition to these scary numbers, is that we can do something about this. We can change the system so that it doesn't have to be this way. What do you think will drive us into changing the system? I wish I knew that answer. my, My hopeful answer is education. My hopeful answer is that programs like this will get people to think that they are to realize that they are only a job loss away from being in this situation. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're doing this. No, none of us get paid for this. And, and we're doing this with the hope that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I suggested that the you know, listeners, you know, don't believe what we say, but go, you know, go find some information yourself that hopefully it'll light up a little little activity in the brain and make people start thinking about this. Unfortunately, um, in the state that we live in, that is so vulnerable to this, there seems to be a view that this isn't something as important as having 16 guns in your closet and and not being able to, not making sure somebody doesn't get an abortion or, or whatever other issues that seem to drive the political climate in this state. Let me ask you a question. What about a policy with a medical spending account? Well, you mean like an HSA? Yes. The problem with an HSA is that the HSA maximum donation for two people is $8,100. That's less than our out-of-pocket costs. And all that does is allow you to put that amount of money into an account tax-free. You still have to pay it. So basically, you're saving the taxes on that $8,100, but even that $8,100 won't won't, um, cover the out-of-pocket costs uh, for the plans that I was talking about on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, on the marketplace. Well, let's talk. You <clears throat> talked a little bit about portability earlier. Um, my wife's mother lives down in um, West Palm Beach, and she's um, well on in age, and she's got Medicare, and she's got some kind of Medicare wraparound. I don't know the details. Got some visual issues, and they wanted to get her up here <clears throat> so that she could have some of these uh, op- ophthalmology issues addressed locally, which is where the the entire family is. But the plan that she's got has the way it the way it works with the wraparound plan. And I don't understand how exactly this happens. It it, it sort of overtakes or supersedes the the Medicare portability so that uh, if she were to come up here and have something done 
um, with her eyes that she doesn't have any coverage. She's down, she's locked into a network. This is Medicaid plus this Medicare, I'm sorry, Medicare with a Medicare wraparound plan. And, and um, uh, it, it, the only thing that's covered if she were to come up here is, um, is an emergency. So you want to give us a, what your thoughts are? Where 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 does your plan, <laughs> with the outrageous prices? Uh, you, how portable is that? If you go to Southern Indiana or or down to Texas, is is it, yeah, what's covered? Well, I actually don't have that plan. I I we were able to get a different plan that costs essentially the same, but has out of network benefits. But we were very fortunate to have that plan um, that we were able to get through my husband's office. And if my husband stops working, um, he has to work whether he wants to or not, because if he stops working, we can't have health, we can't have insurance that'll allow us to ever leave the state. Um, but I do have another example um, that goes to what you're talking about that is that is really on point and similar to what you describe. Um, I have a friend uh, from college whose daughter was going to school in Texas and had a plan through the Texas marketplace. And she went to do an internship for a year in California and developed a gynecologic problem and essentially had no health insurance because her Texas plan did not provide any benefits out of the state of Texas. And so she is, even though she technically has insurance, she is as if she is uninsured. That's insane. Uh, we're getting to the end of the lollipop pop here. We're, we're, we've got three minutes, three minutes left. So I'm going to ask Gene if he wants to make any last minute comments. I may make one and we'll give you the, the final word. Uh, there are some people who are prophesying that uh, the, um, Industry is getting so overwhelmed with the cost of health insurance that they may drive uh, the uh, the system into a um, Medicare for all or a unipayer system because of their cost. What do you think of that idea, Mike? Do you want to? Answer that, or do you want me to answer it? Well, I, I was going to let. I mean, I, 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 one could only hope that you know. I, I, I have some real concerns about the political climate in this country about anything like that happening anytime soon. But I, if, if whatever, whatever works, is is fine with me. It just, I, it's just amazing to me that people in rural Kentucky who are so vulnerable continue to vote, put people in office who, who carry out policies that are against their 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 economic and health self-interest. Susan? Well, and I think a lot of it is also propaganda. I think it, I think there are a couple of things at play. One is propaganda from the commercial insurers, which convince people that that's that their that their system is better than Medicare or Medicaid, even though the, the data and the facts indicate uh, something that's completely different. Um, there's a fear of change. Um, and then also are incentivized to make maintain the status quo because they get paid a lot of money by big pharma and the commercial carriers to, to, to maintain the status quo and to allow them to continue to do what they're doing, even though it's against against the interests of their constituents. Okay. So, 
one final comment here. We're going to get down to the end of the lollipop. Uh, in my opinion, the reason our healthcare system is so screwed up is that we don't have a healthcare system as all of those other first world countries have. We have a healthcare industry, and a healthcare industry is is set up in such a way that a, a large number of of entities from the for-profit insurance companies to the pharmacy benefit managers to the pharmaceutical industry are all exploiting the system for profit. Sounds so, like to me you're a socialist. I'm not. Actually, I, have, <laughs> I, I, I am a man without a country. I consider myself a moderate Republican. Uh, we're about I, just need to, I just need to interject one thing, which is that I am speaking for myself and not for any organization. <laughs> <laughs> well, Susan, thank you again. Yeah. You, you are a great guest, and we're going to have to come up with another topic and have you come on again. Uh, Mark uh, is about to cut us off here. Okay, guys, another uh, really informative show. Um, I know it's been kind of a downer talking about what's wrong with healthcare in America, but I think one of the shining stars in our our system and in our city is our community health care centers. Uh, we've had uh, Ann Hagen Grigsby from Park Duval Health Care Center. We've had Dr. Uh, Voda. Uh, Bob Voida. Yeah. Voida. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, we can only hope. I think um, I saw something 29 million uh, folks get their health care at community health centers. So uh, for more information about single-payer radio and Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. That's kyhealthcare.org. You can uh, check out Facebook for Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare. Uh, single-payer radio is heard here on Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5, Mondays at 2, Tuesdays at 7 a.m. and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. And if you got an extra nickel or two in your pocket, you can go to forwardradio.org and click on the donate button. Thanks again for another very informative show, folks. Thank you.